All right, what's going on, guys? So today I'm sitting down with Dr. Mike Isertel. Um, most of you guys will probably know who he is, but for those of you who might not be familiar, Mike, can you just intro yourself real quick? Oh, you know, I'm so tired of me. Um, Dr. Mike Isertel, PhD in sports physiology from East Tennessee State University. I've been a professor for a long time now in strength and hypertrophy and nutrition and health and behavior at various universities across the United States. And I'm the co-founder and now chief content officer, that's apparently a thing, uh, for RP, Renaissance Periodization, uh, RP Strength on Instagram. And in my spare time, I bodybuild, kind of uh, a little bit of an under-exaggeration. I, uh, I live my entire life for the purpose of bodybuilding, essentially. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so it's a really involved hobby. And then I also do Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappling, uh, because apparently I'm so masochistic, bodybuilding's not enough. Awesome. And honestly, it kind of annoys me sometimes when I hear a lot of people talking about lifting and they're just like, you know, in the end of the day, like, it's not a big deal. Like, who cares? Blah, blah. And it's like, well, that's subjective. And to some people, it really does matter a lot. And that's like their, their kind of life's purpose. You know, you look at certain athletes and I mean, I don't see how lifting weights is any less meaningful than pursuing a career in tech or being a professional athlete, you know? So anyways, just sure. <laughs> but uh, so what we're going to be talking about today actually is, is the evolution of uh, your, your kind of lifting career and just getting to know a little bit of more about your history, kind of what got you into it and how things have progressed. So I guess a, a decent place to start would be like, when did you actually get into lifting weights and did you actually do anything prior to, to weightlifting? Hmm. Good question. So, uh, the first time I was ever exposed to lifting weights, I was like early in my freshman year of um, high school, which makes me 14 years old. And, uh, the weight room was just like open and went in there with some friends and we all tried to do among other things, the barbell incline press. And I did that for, uh, with 55 pounds total, that is the bar plus fives. And I did it for like about 10 reps, pretty much to failure. And I was not the strongest kid out of my group of friends. And uh, that was my first experience lifting. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I uh, had no thoughts on the matter, whatever. I was just a kid messing around. And then I, joined the wrestling team uh, also by accident because another friend of mine, I wanted to hang out with him after school. And I was like, Hey, you want to hang out? And he's like, Oh, I can't, I got to go to wrestling practice. I'm going to go try out. And I was like, Oh, um, well, I'll just go as well. Cause that sounds pretty cool. So uh, we both went and then I started wrestling and uh, during wrestling, I sort of personally felt that, uh, experienced is a better term that strength mattered and being lean and muscular seemed to correlate well with both strength and endurance. So the people that were the best wrestlers, even if you factored out experience and you easily could, cause I'm a freshman team, pretty much everyone doesn't know what they're doing, but the leaner and more jacked kids seem to just be better at everything. So that really, and then when I wrestled competitively later that year, it seemed that people that were jacked and lean just did better. And when someone, you know, beats you 
physically controls you, manhandles you, you tend to get pretty uh, sharp to what it is they embody and what it is kind of characteristics and features that they have because it's a very unequivocal way of being shown dominance and effect, you know? Um, and so I was like, you know, I could probably lift weights and get a little bit uh, more jacked and more lean. So I started lifting weights that spring slash summer. So I was 15 years old and I didn't like it at first. I just did it because I sort of knew I had to. Then I would uh, wrestle during the winter and the rest of the year I would lift weights. And during the school year, I was on a medication called Adderall for attention deficit disorder, which means my appetite was grotesquely suppressed and I didn't really gain a whole lot of weight during the year. But every summer I would gain pretty much 20 pounds because I would lift and eat. And uh, means I gained, gee, yeah, by the summer of my freshman year of college. So four summers it took me and I gained 80 pounds. So I went from 100 pounds my freshman year in high school to 180 pounds my freshman year coming into college. And I had only grown vertically by maybe four inches or so. So a lot of that was just a very different change in my appearance. And it was mostly muscle because I was relatively lean at 180. Uh, it would, would be my adult height of five foot six. So uh, that was that's kind of how I got into uh, lifting weights. It's really quote unquote for wrestling. But eventually I started liking, you know, midway through high school, I started liking lifting at least as much as I like wrestling. We had to, I had a poor relationship with um, sports psychology at the time. Uh, for a variety of other reasons I could get into. I didn't make a very good wrestler at the time. Uh, some of them were very sports psychology sort of reasons. But I found that lifting to be just much more direct. Like you lifted, you got better. That was it. Wrestling seemed to be more complicated. So I started to like lifting a little bit better. And actually, I, I learned to like lifting in a way I could describe to you, if you'd like, uh, how I started to learn to like lifting. Uh, it's a little bit of an interesting innuendo as well. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so like when I first started lifting, um, I, uh, you know, especially as I got into 10th grade, in 10th grade, I discovered that Rage Against the Machine existed, the band, and boy, did I like their music a lot. They were very upset, and I suppose so was I, you know, at just being alive when you're 16 years old, you tend to have a lot of angst, and man, they channel the fuck out of that. So uh, what I would do is I would sit at home, uh, and uh, like Friday nights and listen to Rage Against the Machine and like draw uh, stick figure Dragon Ball Z cartoons. And that would seem to be very cathartic for me. And then I thought, you know, Rage really pumps me up. I'll, I'll use it to, uh, I'll listen to it when I'm lifting weights. And in 10th grade, I started listening to headphones and started listening to Rage Against the Machine and other kind of really powerful music to lift weights. And I realized that like, uh, I was getting a lot more tired um, uh, set after set. And specifically, I was getting emotionally exhausted. Like my ability to come up um, for a set was started to really degrade. And I just felt like I just didn't have anything left to give. And I sort of realized like I could only get so angry for so long until you get really tired and also unable to get much angrier or at all angry. And so I kind of figured uh, that wasn't a really good way to fuel lifting performance. And in addition to that, it wasn't a very pleasant way to fuel lifting performance because while the feelings of power are pretty cool and intense, the feeling of anger and spitefulness, even if it's against weights, 
it's not a good feeling. It's just generally not a positive affect. So I, I thought, yeah, this, this is kind of not working out so well. And at the time, I was also getting into um, uh, meditation and mindfulness practices. And um, because I had a touch of deficit disorder, so my, my brain was kind of like all over the place. And I really desired what I never had in my life, which was a sense of calm and stillness. And I, every time I got that sense, I, I really wanted to hold on to it and know how to replicate it. And to some extent, Adderall, the medication, kind of gave me that. But it was really like Adderall was so loud, it would basically like block out all the other sounds in the brain. It's like a real hardcore way to get mental stillness. And it's not a flexible way. and It's not particularly enjoyable much of the time. But what I did find was that when I was lifting weights, I could harness that feeling of uh, low anxiety and uh, sort of focus and let myself understand and comprehend my thoughts and experience mental stillness a little bit. I also found that the music that I was listening to was interfering with that. And so I started, in, so we had a radio station at the Jewish Community Center gym at which I lifted. And we had a great radio station selector. It was usually on rock or something like that, hip hop. And I would put it to smooth jazz, V98.7, Detroit's number one smooth jazz station and only smooth jazz station, thank God. Um, and I started listening to smooth jazz when I was lifting and it really put me in touch with like sort of my muscle connection and it let me experience some peace and stillness. And I love that. And I found that if I was really at peace and really had a, a deeper level of stillness, I could extract a great amount of power and effort from that. Because if like you're listening to Rage Against the Machine, it's like the entire time I was sort of seeping psychic energy that entire time. It was exuding it, but it wasn't physically lifting. I was like resting between sets. When I was listening to relaxing music between sets, my psychic energy reserve would lift. And then when I turned it up for a set, I had a high margin to drain. And then afterwards, the smooth, relaxing music let me relax again, and I could really recover and drain. Uh, and so that worked out really well. And at some point, I um, preferred lifting to no music at all because I could really, really be at peace. It was nothing distracting me. And I met one of my mentors at another training center, uh, I didn't know he was going to be my mentor, but he was kind of in charge of the gym and there was music playing. It was really loud. And I was like, Hey, can we uh, turn off the music? And he's like, why? And I was like, cause it's like, I like to focus on my lifting and the music's getting in my way. And he's, I was all polite about it. I wasn't a dick. And he's like, Oh, you know, a very serious lifter can focus despite music. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, Holy shit. And it turned out he had been, uh, down a path of mindfulness himself uh, many, many times. And he was actually a very great mixed martial artist. He was a mixed martial artist in the 90s, which is like, like nobody was. And he sort of, uh, him and I became friends and he taught me a lot about lifting and a lot about um, just being at peace and being calm. And that extended a ton. And, and then I was so calm and at peace with my lifting that I could really experiment on how to try really hard so for example, you know, the pain that you get approaching failure, of course, we're all socialized and we don't need to be socialized. Humans and all animals are naturally inclined to perceive pain as a negative and retreat away from it. Whatever it is that's hurting me, you want to pull back. Um, I sort of began to understand, okay, this pain isn't hurting me physically. It's not disrupting anything that can't be healed. And also the more pain I experience, to some extent, the more growth I'll get. So I try to recontextualize pain as a positive. And what I ended up being able to do, and I can still do, is 
there's two parts of pain when you experience it. One is the physical sensation of pain, which is unpleasant. And two is the attachment to not pain. It is the notion that you have to recede away from pain, that you have to stop doing what the pain is doing and going back to having no pain. I was able to disentangle those two things when I was like in, I think, 11th grade or 12th grade. And I was able to feel pain, without, but at the same time, notice this pulsating impulse of stop, stop, stop. And you look at it long enough and you basically feel, okay, I understand this impulse, but I also know what's wrong in this context. So I'm not going to care about it too much. And at first the impulse is crazy. And then as you care about it less, it is less crazy and it becomes really, really small. And at some point you just watch it during your set, like you do another curl and it's fucking crazy pain and your body's like, stop. And you're like, "Ah, I'm okay. And all of a sudden the stops don't seem as loud and you can push yourself really far in effort. And the best part isn't even just pushing yourself far in effort. The best part is after you're done with a set, you don't look back on the set and think, man, thank God it's over. Or man, I was just trying to get away from the pain the whole time. Uh, what a terrible thing. Like running from zombies is like unpleasant, right? Because even if you succeeded, you were it's not a pleasant memory. This was more like a much more pleasant memory now because it's like, well, I had a lot of physical pain, but I interpreted it as a pretty good thing. And I just considered the resistance to it and the attempt to get away from it as like kind of comic relief. Like, oh, oh, brain, here you go trying to run again. And then I look back at every set and I wasn't so scared of it anymore. I wasn't scared of the next set. Um, there's a fear that you have about your next set. Oh my God, like it's going to hurt. But if you realize that the physical pain isn't really the big problem, it's the psychological attachment to not pain. And you can work on that. You can quiet the mind to see that it's something that waves and comes and goes. And if you see it in context, it tends to shrink away. And if you can make that realization, no amount of effort short of physical inability is insurmountable because you're not really afraid of the work anymore. That's actually a really interesting distinction as well, because I, I think a lot of the reasons why people don't get results, I mean, there's kind of the two camps, right? Some people push way too hard all the time, but most people probably don't push hard enough, um, or at least they don't do it consistently enough. And sure, it's, it's kind of that threshold where you do experience pain, but then there's this whole spectrum of pain where it's like, okay, how deep into that kind of pit can you go and still, like you said, maintain that focus and just kind of continue and, and persist and so I think people experience pain, but their, their, um, maybe their interpretation is a little bit different. So like, oh, well, this is, you know, I'm struggling, I'm feeling the burn, I'm feeling all this stuff. So that means it's working and I'm good. But they don't necessarily have that psychological desire to be like, how far can I keep going? And they never really reach that kind of end line where it's like, okay, no, this is actually not just psychological fatigue. This is like, I actually physically, I can't even lift my arm anymore kind of thing. Yeah. And that's true failure yeah yeah and it like i'm obviously like mostly a, a strength coach i don't really coach uh, contest prep or bodybuilders or anything like that but uh and so i i don't generally get people to work to failure uh, very often but i definitely do think that in some cases i think it's really important for just even resetting that psychological kind of limit that you set for yourself and so i don't know that, that was definitely like a really unique perspective on I guess how you kind of came to that, uh, to that end anyways, does, do, do you, are you still on medication for, for ADD? Or, no. or folks that say like so, um, I was, when I was in the, um, uh, ninth grade, I 
and much earlier, my entire academic career was, uh, I was probably one of the worst students in every school that I had been in and every grade that I had been in. Um, and at the same time, it was confusing to my parents and teachers because if you spoke to me, I was clearly not an idiot. And at times I seemed gifted and that my parents uh, assumed I was just lazy. So they yelled at me a lot, beat the shit out of me, which is a normal part of the tool belt of Russian Ashkenazi Jews. It's just to like hit you more and yell at you more. So uh, no love lost there. But uh, at, at the end of uh, basically 15 years of me sucking with occasional impressive exploits. So for example, like when I was uh, six or seven, um, my dad taught my sister and I mathematical concepts we're not supposed to understand until you're 12 when we could like easily understand them. When I was in the eighth grade, I won the geography B and I took top 50 in the state of Michigan in geography. But just like, you don't see super low IQ people doing that. It's just out of their realm. And it was like, okay, like clearly he's up to some shit. And so it was a fine hypothesis my parents had about me being lazy. <laughs> you know, there's no uh, good countervailing idea to that. But the, when I was in ninth grade, my mom was completing her re-education in the United States. She had already been educated in Russia, but she was getting a master's degree in social work. And uh, they had covered all the, the general um, psychiatric and psychological conditions. And intentional deficit disorder was one of them. She was like, damn, that sounds a lot like my son. And they took me to see a child psychologist who was one of the individuals that maybe have one of the biggest influences of my life to this point. And he, in very short order, diagnosed me with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, inattentive type. I was never hyperactive. I just couldn't pay attention. Uh, uh, I couldn't hold a string of concepts in my head for long enough to make any sense out of a lot of stuff. So, for example, like an algebraic equation, just a simple, you know, very, very simple equation, uh, y equals x plus 3 or something like that. I couldn't see it long enough and couldn't manipulate the variables in my mind. Um, because I would just lose attention and I would have to start all over. So it's inf infinitely frustrating to do math uh, or have any complex thoughts, whatever, and also uh, almost impossible. Um, so I, I was awful at math and, and everything else that was difficult. And so the I was administered an IQ test, uh, two components, a performance uh, IQ test and a verbal IQ test. The verbal one is where the administrator, who was the child psychologist, simply asked two questions. Uh, about like, oh, what do you know about the world? How complex of concepts can you think? How much awareness do you have? Um, things like that. Um, can you spot patterns? And then the other test was a performance test where you just had to execute mental operations pretty quickly, uh, usually on a computer or written paper and pencil. And so on the uh, performance test, I scored just above mentally retarded, <laughs> which is sweet and not below. Uh, and then in the... Um, uh, part that was administered without timing. Uh, I scored above the genius cutoff. So they're like, this just doesn't really ever happen unless you have like a quantifiable uh, psychological disorder. And then he administered various tests of uh, attention ability. Uh, and I fucking just did the worst you can imagine on them. And they're like, okay, so good news, your kid's not dumb, bad news, his brain is broken. So, you know, we have some options, therapies, fine some uh, ideas about like spacing the workout more frequently is fine. And then my uh, psychologist, thank God, was like, you know, actually the, the most effective by far is medication. 
And my dad instantly asked him, I wasn't there for this conversation. This was told to me later. My dad asked him, like, can't we just give him like a placebo, like a sugar pill or something and make him think that he can pay attention? And the psychologist was like, like no, unfortunately, it just doesn't work because it's actually something wrong with his brain. You know, it's like someone has like only one leg and you're like, can't we just tell them he has two? Like, nope, still just has one leg. You know, <laughs> some shit he's not going to be able to do. So, so I was put on uh, Adderall medication. I remember that day, maybe better than I remember almost any day in my entire life. It was the first day that I was on it. I took half a pill, it's five milligrams of Adderall. For those in the know, that's... <laughs> A lot of people would take that and not feel anything. So I was in math class, which I was failing. Uh, I would say gratuitously failing. I had like a 16% in the class, total percent. Yeah, like that's not an F, that's like, like, if you do twice as good, you're still failing. Three times as good, you're getting a D. <laughs> so I remember sitting in class and usually the shit on the board was completely incomprehensible. And the teacher was writing some basic equations with fractions on the board. And he asked like answers. He'd be like, what do you guys think this is? And I was like, uh, blah, blah, you know, five. And he's like, correct. And I was like, okay. maybe it was just luck. And then he asked another question. I was like, this is the easiest shit I've ever done in my life. And I was like that. He's like, correct. And I just did that the entire class. And I came up to him after. I was like, I'm going to be your best student. And he was like, you know, how often does that happen? He's like, oh, okay, do your best. You know, he's not going to, like, he's a teacher. He's a kind man. He's not going to shoot me down and be like, shut up. But he was like, all right, see you, see you next class. And so that began, that was in uh, ninth grade. And I went to summer school the ninth grade year uh, because I had failed so many classes. They're like, you need to go to summer school to like make up shit you failed. And that was the first time I learned biology. Um, actually learned it instead of sitting through a class. And it was just like completely mind blown. Like the cell is made of machines. I was like, what? <laughs> so uh, I, I learned that stuff. And then by the end of high school, I was yeah probably the most decorated student in my class and probably the best math student at least two years in either direction, probably more. Um, so that was a fucking trip. But uh, when I got into college, my brain started to mature faster or got close to its maturational endpoint. And I uh, began to have more side effects than positive effects from the medication. Adderall is a real fun list of side effects. Actually, all the side effects from methamphetamine are uh, existing for Adderall. So uh, it was like wild anxiety, crazy anxiety depression, all of a sudden insane shit. And uh, the anxiety got so bad, I couldn't actually learn anymore, even on a medication. So that freaked me the fuck out because I was like, okay, I need this medication to learn. I'm not a very prestigious university. And if I don't, my brain doesn't work, I'm fucking done. So I almost failed out of that university when I quit the medication because I couldn't take it anymore. But it didn't fail out. And then I switched majors to strength training oriented stuff. And I was getting C's. And then a semester later, I was getting B's. And a semester later, I was getting A's. And then by the end of my college career, I was getting straight A's. And then I just got straight A's, a couple B's here and there through my master's program. And then I was kind of out in the ether as far as performance of my PhD program. And now I'm Dr. Mike, uh, boy genius. <laughs> I suppose I don't look like a boy anymore. Balding uh, person who calls himself a genius because he has ego issues, JK. But on a serious note, um, now my brain works super well. Uh, I probably still have a slightly below average attention span for the average human, but it's close enough to where I can get work done. And I have tons of good strategies developed for how to get work done. I still understand how people like get work done in the presence of music or television. Like that's how fickle my attention span is. Like if there's TV voices, I'm like, like I'm done. So a lot of times I'll have headphones in or just be in a super quiet room and then I can get a lot done. 
But like, that's why I don't take the medication anymore was because the trade-off started to be not great. But the good news is, is for many people, maybe like a third, attention deficit disorder is a developmental disorder. So when they mature into adulthood, it kind of goes away for the most part. So like I maybe had like a five-year lag compared to my age cohort and attention. So like, for example, like when I was 10 years old, I probably had the attention span of a five-year-old. Now for 10-year-old work, that's fucking impossible. You're an idiot. Like when I was 15, I had the attention span of a 10-year-old. Again, not good enough for algebra. Um, but by the time I was 25, I had the attention span of a 20-year-old, which is pretty close to optimal. And when I was 30, I had the attention span of a 25-year-old. That's already peak. So uh, it got better as time went on. But I will say, because I never miss a chance to show for big pharma, um, Adderall changed the course of my life in the biggest possible way anything ever could, or anything ever did, rather, and I owe modern psychology, modern psychiatry, and pharmacology all the money I've ever made and all the productive content I've ever produced. Um, all miraculous, miraculous, um, just unbelievable. So then during, during that time, because you were taking Adderall even through your, um, your university career, at least in the- Like industry. halfway through. Mm -hmm. So how did that- impact your your ability to train and your your mentality just kind of in general when you're when you're lifting weights well adderall lets you focus quite well so it definitely helps with lifting it doesn't let you relax very well so it doesn't help you with lifting the first week i was on adderall in high school i slept maybe four or five hours every night because i just couldn't go to sleep but instead of like laying around i would just study <laughs> i was like oh my god i have a brain i just started to learn everything As a matter of fact my favorite hobby during high school was to go home and do like three or four hours of homework. Um, I did so much homework that I skipped two years of math because I just finished two textbooks <laughs> by myself in one year. Uh, so, so that was really sweet. Um, but on the relaxation side, yeah, you know, like after you're done lifting and you're on Adderall, you're still like, and, you know, that's not ideal. Uh, and I never had a, a work effort problem in the gym. So once I was no longer on Adderall, it was probably overall better for my lifting um, because I was still able to train super hard, but then I was also able to relax and sleep well and all this other stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. So who, who were some of those people that you looked up to when you were just kind of starting to come up? Like, did you, when you started getting a little bit more serious with, uh, with lifting weights, did you have any idea that you wanted to do powerlifting or do bodybuilding or did you kind of uh, enjoy it? My first goal physique was Bruce Lee. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Because, you know, 300 pounds ago, <laughs> right. to the untrained eye, Bruce Lee is jacked. And that's kind of hilarious to you and I. But um, I thought, OK, I could be like Bruce Lee. And I also read when I was in 10th grade, Arnold's Encyclopedia of uh, what was an encyclopedia, by the way. It was Arnold, The Education of a Bodybuilder, which is like a really entertaining book. And it, more than learning anything from it, it inspired living shit out of me and made me want to train forever. And that was really cool. And of course it taught some basics and stuff like that. Some of which were wrong, but nonetheless gave me something to sort of attach to. So I looked up to Arnold considerably and Franco Colombo and Ed, Ed Corny and those guys, because those are the characters in the book that I had read. Mind you, this is pre truly expansive internet. So like, you know, there's no, uh, I didn't know shit existed at all. And then, I was uh, lifting weights at the Jewish Community Center and I was bench pressing and I weighed like 160 pounds and I was benching 225 for reps. 
And one of the guys there who I knew about him, he never spoken to me, but he was Bill and he was a powerlifter. He was a competitive powerlifter. And he's like, hey, like you got some talent in the bench press. Let me show you how to bench press properly. Uh, you could bench a lot more. And I was like, okay. So he taught me how to arch and retract. And immediately my bench went down by like 20 pounds. And he's like, give it time, feel it out and it'll go back up. So I did. And then it went up 20 pounds, up 10 pounds, up 10 pounds, up 10 pounds. And I was like, oh my God, why did I ever bench in any other way? Like once you learn how to truly arch and retract, bench pressing is like, like swimming as a, you know, if you were a duck, you know, like just the most natural thing you could ever be doing. And you look at other people who are flat backing it and you're like, the hell's wrong with that guy? It doesn't, good God. So uh, I learned how to do that. So I looked up to him and then I went over to this gym called Fitness Unlimited in a town close by or a suburb close by. And I met a bunch of other powerlifters, some of whom were USAPL champions. And they were squatting like six, 700 pounds. And to me, that was just incomprehensible. Like I looked at them as gods. Anything they said, I would have been like, ah. Um, and that was really intense. And then I started competing in powerlifting and I started looking up to other powerlifters. I remember reading an article um, about uh, Clay Brandenburg, who was one of the first people to bench 900 in equipment. And just like everything he said, I just listened like it imprinted right into my skull. And it was one of those, like, you had to go to a website to read it. You know what I mean? It was just like way older, pre-blog, pre-anything. And uh, so I looked up to folks like that. And then I started watching World's Strongest Man when I was like 17 or 18. And Sven Carlson, specifically 2001 champ, if I could be him, I would just say, yes, let's just do it. Like pure idolatry. And all those guys, especially the guys from the Nordic countries, um, Yanni Virdnan, uh, Yoko Ahola, like all those guys, I was just like blown away. Like how? And I watched every heat and every championship of World's Strongest Man. Still to this day, Strongman is one of the only sports that I don't do, but I'm a fan of. Like I don't play basketball. I don't watch basketball. I don't play football. I don't watch football. I do jiu-jitsu i watch jiu-jitsu i watch mma but like jiu-jitsu is close enough to mma where it's pretty relatable i guess um strongman i don't train but i love the sport i mean i love it i, I still follow it to this day with some decent regularity and to me those those strongmen they just like it was just like there's nothing more motivational than watching that shit um and that probably fueled a lot of my lifting and it also helped me pursue strength as like never, I never got back in the day, never got into like mind muscle or shaping the muscle or slowing the weight down or focus on the eccentric. I just tried to get stronger uh, for a long time. And it helped you a lot of size gains too, because it, you know, it was very objective. So those folks were people I looked up to. And then I don't know why, but I picked up a flex magazine in 2002, right before 2003. And it was the 2002 Olympia issue. Um, so it had all the Olympia physiques broken down, all the placings. And um, those people to me were just superhuman. And I looked at the physiques and I read that first issue cover to cover. And anytime I got an issue of Flex Magazine and later Muscular Development, I read every single fucking word in every single one of those. And then I started to become a bodybuilding fan. And I started to slowly transition from powerlifting competition and training into bodybuilding competition training just out of pure enjoyment. Like I just really liked to train like that more. And I had all these guys to look up to. And I remember the first person that I really latched onto was like, whoa, like as an individual, like I was of course, you know, 
Ronnie Coleman's physique, Jay Cutler's physique, they were super inspirational. But Dennis James, I don't know if you know who that is, but Google Dennis James IFB Pro and you're going to see someone who's so muscular and actually you're doing it now, yeah? I want to see your reaction. Jesus. Right? That was, when was that? This was like in 2002, 2003. That's crazy. So Dennis James was like 5'8", and he was on stage as heavy as like 265 and had off-season at 300. And his chest and shoulders specifically were so big, it didn't look like you could add any more muscle on his frame. Like, he was almost immobile because of how unbelievable. He's probably one of the best chests of all time. Um, just a purely nonsensical physique. And I thought I found his physique hilarious, like in the best possible way, like absurd. And I wanted to be all, as much like Dennis James as I could. And I think I'm still on that journey, to be completely honest. So that's, uh, that's kind of my, my motivating factor right there. That's wild. Like he's... So the, the photos that I'm seeing anyways, he's, he seems kind of like he's in that, uh, that bridging stage where um, the Olympia was kind of going from, or I, I don't know if this is the same federation. So, you know, I'm not a bodybuilder, so don't hate on me, but it's okay. Um, where, where it was going from like a little bit more of that kind of classic type of physique to just the monster right now. And like, honestly, I love both. Like I look at Ronnie Coleman and I'm like, he's just not big enough, you know? But yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so this guy's this guy's ridiculous. Yeah, Dennis James was and is still one of the true mass monsters. Like, if you love the mass monster look, you don't know who Janice, Dennis James is. The first time you ever see a picture of him, you're going to be like, "What?" Like our videographer Scott, we were shooting some videos at a gym in Las Vegas for training. <laughs> And I was like, Scott, look, this Dennis James is one of my like early idols. And he turned around and he just started laughing at the picture because it's Dennis James like doing a muscle muscular on the beach. And Scott's like, how, how, how does that work? How does he move around? Why, where would any extra muscle go? Like that to me is truly inspirational. And I was always inspired in other facets of life by the superhuman, you know, like uh, I'll put the other way. So like uh, the, you've seen the Matrix, right? The Matrix trilogy. Yeah. They're always like real big fans in there of like, it's because I'm human, like a machine you would never understand. Like we have our common humanity and that's what makes us special. Like all that shit, like when in one ear and out the other, I was like, human is frail, is diseased, it is weak. How about better than human? So when I saw anything superhuman, I was always like, whoa. So to me, Dennis James is like, like why would you ever want to look like Harry Potter if you could look like Dennis James? You know, like a matter of fact, let's recast Harry Potter with Dennis James as every actor. That's right, every single one. Like Eddie Murphy. I see zero downside to that. 100%. Easy. Easy 500 million or however much it costs to make a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> yeah. So so then when, when you were coming up, then you kind of made that transition into bodybuilding. Um, I guess I've got a couple questions around that. So the first one is like when you first started versus where you're at right now as a coach, like how has how actually being in the trenches helped you as a coach? Because I feel like there, there's certain things like I, I coach a lot of people to react and big, but I don't do contest prep because I've never done it. And I just feel like there's way too much stuff that I don't understand about it. Yeah. The conceptual framework. So what are some of those things that have really helped you um, from a coaching perspective that you kind of feel like you had to have gone through? Yeah. I mean, like, so body water management is a big one. 
unless you peak for a contest and nailed it and had um, been pretty dry on stage, uh, you don't know what it takes, um, how you're supposed to feel. You know, like if you've never done a contest and someone's like, I'm really tired, you could be like, oh, we should take a break. But if you've done a contest, you're like, how tired? Tell me more. And if it's really bad, you're like, take a break. But if it's normal, you're like, okay, you're supposed to be tired. Um, you know, what kind of foods affect, uh, you know, fullness levels? What kind of foods affect bloating differently? Um, how your training should look in the week before? It's all very, very well summarized in theory. But in practice, you get all kinds of really awesome nuances that you'd never pick up if you didn't do it. And then especially the biggest influence is sort of what I've already intimated is that when athletes tell you, hey, I'm going through X, Y, Z, if you've never gone through it before, geez, man, I don't know what you're going to be doing as far as a coach, because you can't, you can't really tell what's going on. You know, like imagine being a race car driving coach and someone's like, yeah, I'm feeling a lot of G-forces on turn number three. And you're like, I know what both of those things mean, but I don't, is that bad? Like, does the car feel unstable? Well, the car's supposed to feel somewhat, if you're not pushing the car, you're not a race car driver, right? So how do you know what's, what's, where's that margin of like, oh, that's kind of weird. You should probably back off on that turn. Or it's like, no, like that's nothing. The car's supposed to shake when you turn. Who the fuck knows, right? You, you got to do it yourself to figure out a lot of those insights. And in addition to that, if I was an athlete looking for a coach, I would never in a million years hire a coach who hadn't actually experienced the process um, because they probably don't know those very specific things that make a world of difference, um, in the time, in the moment, exactly. So, you know, people know you're supposed to drink less water or eat less salt and eat more carbs, but like, what's the timing of that exactly? When your body's going through some shit and you're looking different, feeling different, how do you judge the timeline and how do you make adjustments for that? Well, if you've never done it before yourself, man, that shit is tough. If you've done it before yourself, it's like a super crazy cheat sheet. You're like, oh, I know exactly what we're going through. Um, and, you know, someone who, you know, I've only competed like four times or something. That's not a lot. And a lot, there's people out there who've competed 40 times. Uh, the more intelligent ones and the, the ones insistent on learning from the process, they're very, very wise. You know, they know a lot of stuff that, that you wouldn't just pick up from reading or thinking about stuff for long because they've been in the trenches so much. So there's a lot to say that. Now, mind you, I'm not, I'm not actually a bodybuilding coach. Um, I don't coach bodybuilders. I coach one bodybuilder as a hobby. My, uh, one of my training partners, Charlie Jung, the only person I actually ever coach, um, Jared Feather and Sam Okunula do our coaching and RP for bodybuilders, and they both competed an inordinate number of times, so they have all that wisdom more than I do by a long shot. So I think that is super, super important. No, that makes sense. It's like a temp selection for a powerlifter, right? How the fuck are you going to tell them what to lift if you don't even know? And they think, how heavy was that? Pretty heavy. You're like, oh, okay, go up. Oh, I don't know. Like, no, like you have, even like as a coach, when you're watching someone lift, they can say it felt heavy, but you saw it moved fast. So you could be like, yeah, you got 10 pounds easy. But if you're, if you've watched that athlete before, if you've competed before yourself, you know that for them moving fast means nothing because they fail like, and they just fall. And if they say like it was really heavy, you're like, all right, well, five pounds more. We're not going to take any jumps to 15 or something like that. So having the experience is, is absolutely uh, essential. Right. So I've been following you for, man, I don't even know how many years, but a lot. Too long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's almost at the stalker stage. Perfect. Um, yeah. It's kind of that sweet spot. But uh, I, I've definitely noticed that there are certain times where like I'll know how do I say this? Like my, my knowledge outpaces my experience. Right. And then once my experience catches up, it's like this massive jump in terms of 
the results that I'm going to be able to accomplish in my training. It almost feels like you kind of get this new newbie games type of, of you know? and I've definitely seen that with you and your progress in, uh, in, in bodybuilding, your physique. And there, there were a handful of times where it was like, you were kind of making progress and then it was like, boom, you just kind of shot up. And like, what, what were those moments for you where maybe it was just like something kind of like really clicked in, whether it was like recovery strategy or your diet or something like that. For me, the biggest thing was like diet. Once, once I was really able to lock in my diet, then everything really kind of changed. So what, what was that for you? Or what were those moments? One is figuring out body water dynamics, which I only just figured out recently. So this last show when I had like striatic glutes on stage, it's because we figured out how body water works and took the right supplements and manipulated the right fluid amounts, carbon amounts, salt, so on and so forth to make that happen. So I, I was uh, already quite big, already quite lean, but I couldn't show it off because I was carrying a, a really thick film of body water. Um, so that's a big deal. Uh, and then uh, a couple of other of those elevations were from pharmacology. And that was when I started working with Broderick Chavez, uh, Team Evil, GSP on Instagram. And he is a pharmacology coach. It's all he coaches. He doesn't particularly have any interest in telling you what to eat or how to train, but he will tell you what to take. And he has a, a very unique approach and myself and especially Jared, who's a coach himself has modeled his knowledge um, on Broderick's knowledge. Difficult to do because he's real smart and knows a lot of shit. He's been around for forever. Um, so he's got that wisdom as well as the knowledge. And I talked to him once uh, because I was on his podcast years ago. And then I was like, what do you do for a living after the podcast was over? We talked for like another 40 minutes and he was like, yeah, I'm a farm coach. And I was like, huh. And then I was like, I scheduled a consult with him. And my first thing I ever do, I schedule consults for my own good is I try to shit test the person. And I see how much biology they get wrong. And it's not that he got his biology and physiology wrong. It's that he rephrased the questions I was asking because I was less wise than him on pharmacology. And I was asking the questions in the wrong way. You know, like if the, it's like if someone's like, you ask someone like, someone asks you like, hey, like, how do you increase your bench press? And you go, do you mean like a competition bench with a pause? Or do you mean wide grip bench? Or we touch and go? And they're like, what the fuck is all that? And you're like, okay, well, let's get specific. And you're like, oh, this person knows way more than me. <laughs> like, I'm not shit testing them. They're shit testing me and I'm failing. So that's what he did. Um, and I was like, okay, clearly this man knows what's going on. And he, of course, he nailed all the physiology questions. Uh, and I contracted him and he essentially taught me how to take special sports supplements, which I had been taking poorly uh, in a way that that was just much more effective. And uh, every now and again, we sort of up the ante as to how intensive the intervention becomes. And that's probably responsible for some of those blips. Uh, and that, that's really the key. Uh, and, and again, just like in training, that wisdom and that, that awesome insight is I don't want to say priceless because I literally do put a price on him based on the fees I pay him, but uh, expensive and rightfully so because it's got huge, huge uh, carryover. And just like there's a bro science to lifting that's not that great, there's a bro science to drugs that sucks. And I was, that's what I was doing because that's what every idiot that was jacked was doing. And then when I flipped the script and started doing it more rationally, more scientifically under Broderick's tutelage, it made a huge difference, huge difference. Uh, it allowed me to take less total and get better results and be healthier doing it. Uh, so uh, really, 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 really big deal. Can't possibly understate that. Also, I'm not going to bullshit you guys on this fucking 
I'm not going to bullshit your podcast, uh, you know, uh, listeners and say like, well, fucking figured out MRV. I had MRV figured out, you know, a long time before you probably started following me. Uh, and of course, mind muscle connection, finding high stimulus to fatigue ratio exercises. Those were other things that clicked and, and led to a lot of really good results. Uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio specifically is one of those, but yeah, no, pharmacology was a big part of that. Uh, it was all in that same vein of doing things that are incrementally more intelligent. Yeah. Broderick is, Broderick is hilarious. I've had him on the podcast twice so far, and he he, he, yell a lot? <laughs> yeah, he does that a lot. I'll ask him a question. He's like, before I answer your question, I need to give you 15 minutes of context first. And like, oh yeah, he's awesome, man, because he's so smart, but he's also so rough around the edges. For sure. Like such a funny, um, such a funny combination, I guess. So, you know, Broderick quit coaching. I can take full credit for bringing him back into coaching. He quit coaching what he thought was permanently because he couldn't stand the IQ disparity anymore. He was coaching people that barely understand how to tie their shoes. And he just, he passes that. You know what Mensa is? You familiar with Mensa? Yeah. We had to do, we had to do those before he came to Canada. Yeah, there you go. So like, they're like, there's basically an IQ test and the Mensa category is like, uh, like when you, you can join Mensa when you have a genius level like you or above and Broderick passes the Mensa test every year as a joke, because he has some curious disdain for the organization. So he passes the test and they offer him a membership and he tells them to go fuck themselves. So, uh, you know, he's that smart, right? And, it, you know, the average bodybuilder without sounding too condescending, um, that's Jared Feather's job, uh, he is, is just not the sharpest tool in the shed. It's just at best an average person, probably below average. And a lot of the questions he got and the misinterpretations of his guidelines he got uh misapplications laziness he just couldn't deal with them anymore like you know you're basically giving people renaissance paintings and they're like splattering shit stains on it and you're like why the fuck am i doing art at all and he just quit and then working with myself and a couple of people that i referred him to reasonably slightly more intelligent than average he was like oh okay this i can do and then we got him into consulting and podcasting or not podcasting and consulting and having his own brand uh, and his own sort of like website and stuff. And he really seems to like that because he can be, uh, he can present his ideas with unbridled complexity and intelligence and other members in the group will explain it to stupid people if they don't understand or not. And he doesn't have to dumb it down. Anytime Broderick has to dump something down, like I feel an existential pain coming through and I, him and I enjoy talking to each other a lot. I think one of the reasons he might enjoy talking to me is because he doesn't have to dumb anything down. He just straight tells me how it is. A lot of times he'll say, well, you're a physiologist, so check this out. And I'm like, yes, I still am. And I still understand what you're saying. So it was kind of funny that he almost left the industry entirely. He just couldn't fucking take it anymore. On my worst days, I'm just not a very angry person. Certainly not on Broderick's level. On my worst days, every now and again, like there's an Instagram comment or two that will have me thinking Broderick like thoughts of like just leaving forever. Like um, why use the Smith machine is like up there, you know, it's like, well, you see it, it imparts force on the musculature and, and, and resisting that force, it causes tension that causes growth. Get, that's a very interesting explanation to give to people who have no context for any of that. Right. But there's like, sometimes I get questions or repetitive questions, which are just like beyond the pale, frustrating as fuck. But I'm okay at being able to deal with that. I totally see where he was coming from. Yeah, the best is when you get someone. Well, I mean, exactly like what happened uh, before we even started the podcast. I was like, oh, by the way, I just got an next email. And then you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because like I was having this conversation with myself. 
before actually saying anything to you. And I was like, oh yeah, he wasn't privy to what I was thinking. That makes sense. <laughs> He's a different person than Mike. <laughs> yeah. Nick and I have tried a surgery that connects our brains, but it was a disaster. We decided it would just be our own people. I know, I know. Yeah. Medicine's just not ready for it yet. So what, uh, what are some of your competitive goals uh, in, in jujitsu as well as bodybuilding? Yeah, so for the time being, I've left all my competitive goals for jiu-jitsu behind. Um, I used to have some and I used to achieve some. I don't plan on competing in jiu-jitsu until I'm done competing in bodybuilding. And that should occur within the next five years. I plan, I'm 36. I plan to do one of two things, get as big and lean as possible with constraints, of course, on how many, how many supplements I'm willing to use. Uh, so long as my health holds up, I'm going to try to get as big and lean as possible and or until my physiological peak occurs and I can no longer get any bigger and leaner. Um, that's when I'll stop bodybuilding. I'll drop probably a considerable amount of weight. I'll focus exclusively or, or mostly on jujitsu as my number one sport. For the meantime, I'm training jujitsu two to four times a week, uh, not with any competitive aspirations, but jujitsu is kind of sweet because every session you compete against other people anyway, like a live role is very similar to how it would be a competition. It's just, you don't have to drive very far. Um, so, no competition jujitsu stuff coming up, but definitely more competition bodybuilding. And my goal in bodybuilding is, is quite simple, is to get nasty, as nasty as my genetics will allow within the context of responsible supplement use. And uh, I mean, like last time when I was on stage, I had striated glutes and I was 220 on stage, 225 in the weigh-in right before. And um, that's pretty cool, man. At five, six, that's not bad. Um, and if I manage to add another 10 to 20 pounds of muscle over the next several years, it's just going to look kind of stupid, which is sweet, you know, and at the end of the day, maybe a master's pro card is in my uh, abilities. Maybe it's not, but like, I, as far as like legacy or whatever, before quitting the sport, um, I want to be that evidence-based guy that was like close to pro sized or pro sized and lean so that there's nothing in this world <laughs> A uh, few things in this world get to me as much as like the dichotomy between evidence-based people and, and pros, They're like pro bro shit. Like, you know, like, oh yeah, like Eric Helms is like, whatever, he's a fucking nerd, but he's small. Like, yeah, you know, if Eric Helms was taking two grams of gear a week and, you know, 50 units of slim and, you know, eight IUs of growth, which isn't even that much relative to some pros take, he would be 240, 250 on stage with striated glutes. And then you fucking pathetic assholes would be trying to suck his dick every fucking available moment, trying to figure out what the fucking secret is. And like, oh, he really knows his stuff. That shit gets to me like crazy. Like, so, you know, Eric Helms isn't willing for very good reasons to use drugs to bridge that gap. I am, and I'm doing it. So I want to be that evidence-based guy that's also fucking super fucking jacked and lean by any standards so that people listen to evidence-based stuff more. Because um, it really pains me when people listen to complete fucking idiots about wrong shit all the time just because these guys are super jacked. Well, you want super jacked? Here's my trick. Boom. I'm super jacked. Probably Charlie, one of my training partners and best friends, is going to be super fucking, he's already super fucking jacked. Jared Feather. Jared Feather, if he doesn't get hit by a car or some shit, He's already a pro. He's going to fucking be knocking on a lot of doors in the next couple of years. Cause as far as like how far we've taken that, the special sports supplements thing, barely, barely. And that's the big trick, right? Uh, we're going to be the guys that are saying like, look, you know, that dichotomy of nerd versus actual pro in, in the trenches, that dichotomy is fucking gone. Like the nerds are here and they're fucking as big as you. 
go fuck yourself. How do you like that for fucking rage? How'd I do on the Broderick scale? Am I Broderick yet? I think you're about a one out of 10 on the Broderick scale. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny dichotomy because like on the one hand, I definitely have seen and like I've been guilty of this for sure of kind of extrapolating things beyond their, their applicability, right? Like you look at, let's say, occlusion training. I've never been someone who really uses that, but, you know, people have discussions on it, like just to kind of to no end. And you're kind of like, okay, well, you're sort of fucking spinning your wheels. Like you're, you're super small. You don't need to worry about MRV because you probably never even come anywhere close to it. (laughs) You've been the same size for, you know, seven years, you just need to push. And I think, I think it's like, that's totally reasonable. But then at the same time, when you look at people and you're just like, oh, you're just a nerd. It's like, that seems kind of stupid. You know, it's, it's just, it's at least just as stupid as saying the reverse being like, oh, well, he doesn't know anything because he doesn't have any education. You know, it's kind of like when, uh, I think it was Phil Heath who was saying about the fish and it makes his thin, his skin thin, right? And everyone started calling him an idiot. And it's like, okay, sure. Maybe he's wrong about why it's happening, but dude, six time Mr. Olympia, right? Like you must know a thing or two, you know? And so there should be some reverence there. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe we could take it seriously. And I mean, like, as far as you were saying for Eric, it's like, okay, sure. Like, yeah, he's not, he's not the most Jack bodybuilder, but at the same time, like he coaches Bryce Lewis and Bryce Lewis is pretty freaking jacked and strong. If you ask me, sure. so, I don't know. Like, um, yeah, I, I will say like, you know, so Phil Heath's whole like thins the skin. Um, you know, Eric Helms has been just about as lean as Phil Heath, uh, very close, super detailed glutes. And someone could say like, yeah, but he's not as big. Like, well, no shit, but we all know why Phil Heath is big. And it's not because he eats fucking tilapia, you fucking idiots. So there's definitely a reverence you have to have. Like, that's why I hate the whole dichotomy of like nerd versus fucking bro. Is the bros are supposed to be big, but dumb as shit. And the nerds are supposed to be small and super sciencey. And that sort of gives it the impression that super sciencey stuff doesn't work. There's a bunch of considerations that people have never thought about. For example, maybe the bros aren't sciencey because they never had to be because they had good genetics and took a bunch of drugs and they got pretty fucking jacked just on that shit. Maybe the nerds are people who are smart, but have shitty genetics for lifting and they had to learn a bunch of stuff and learn a bunch of science because if they didn't, they would be nothing. And now they're like decently impressive for naturals, but that was all hard one, you know, clawed and scratched gains from learning their bodies and learning science as good as possible. And then in addition to that, you know, if you think the pros know everything, then how come they hire people that are educated in science to peak them for shows? You know, what it is is like, what does um, like Chad Nichols mean to these people? Like Chad Nichols prepped Ronnie Coleman and uh, Big Ramey tried to win the Olympia Bunch, didn't. And then Chad Nichols prepped him and he won on the first try. <laughs> so, you know, like is Chad Nichols just a bro? No, he's a real sharp guy, he really knows stuff. So even the pros use nerds. Uh, so, you know, why can't, uh, why can't there be an understanding of like, listen, don't be a fucking pussy, train your balls off, eat tons of food, stop bitching. Great. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to ascend to the top, take a bunch of drugs, just part of the sport, but also try to think about some shit every now and again. So you're not an idiot and you don't just get hurt or ruin your health before, before your prime. Perfect example of that is like, uh, what's his name? Boston Lloyd. Uh, who pride, pride himself on how much gear he could use. And now he's like in his early thirties or late twenties and his kidneys are breaking because he like had chronic high blood pressure for too long. Like he was, he was like the ultimate guy talking shit about nerds and all this stuff. And it's like, what the fuck are you now? You know, and I'm bigger than him. Uh, and 
using a tenth of the gear and my kidneys were just fine. John Metafaka, this is hilarious. I always talk about this as one of the greatest, one of the greatest social media things I've ever seen. Uh, Boston Lloyd decided it was a good idea to talk shit to John Meadows. And he told John Meadows, he's like, I currently make XYZ amount of money on like online, whatever. And I'll be making like twice the money that you are when I'm your age. And uh, John Meadows goes, you'll be dead by the time you're my age. And when John Meadows said that he was like 42 or 43, hey, now that's looking pretty likely. <laughs> you know, it's like, holy shit, that wasn't even a joke. So it's one of those like, yeah, you know, the bros talk a bunch of shit, but at the end of the day, the more nerdy you can be about stuff with in context, the better. There's no, there's no like the nerds need to be pussies or the bros need to be idiots. The ultimate person who gets as big and strong as possible is someone who has the ballsiness of a bro, the willingness to do what it takes, and the intelligence and wisdom and education of a nerd. And then you have a fucking super weapon. Jared Feather. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't really make any sense why you wouldn't utilize every tool at your disposal, right? So yeah. But, uh, so, so we're coming on that hour mark and uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, where can people find you? Renaissance Periodization at RP Strength on Instagram at RPDRMIKE, RP Dr. Mike on Instagram. And best of all is YouTube, Renaissance Periodization on YouTube. And if you have trouble spelling that, I sure as hell do. Then you can type it in. Uh, is Rattel my last name and hypertrophy or some shit like that in the RP YouTube channel? Uh, will come up very shortly, uh, or just Israel RP, and it'll come up. And we put out, man, at least four videos a week of super high-end educational content uh, geared towards people who want to get jacked, leaner, stronger, um, and so on and so forth. So that's that's kind of what we're doing, and tons of YouTube content. So come join us. Also, I just noticed when I lean in like that, can you see one of my jujitsu boo-boos that I got? Uh, I don't even know how I got it. But what does this like wearing uh, glasses or something? I wish. No, no. This is from getting my face beat in during a roll or like you, the gi gets just dragged over your face. That's always fun. I remember those days. My knuckles, like when I first transitioned from Muay Thai to boxing, I like because Muay Thai is mostly kicking and kneeing and elbow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then like maybe 30%, 20% punches, like really. Sure. And, and so I went to straight boxing and you're throwing like hundreds and hundreds or actually thousands of punches, like just in, just in a single session. And like the, the cartilage on my knuckles would like separate so you could push oh, them. And it, you'd hear it, you'd hear it go like, er, 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 and it was just like, oh, they're so swollen up for the first little bit. You get like rashes on your face from people who was just raking over your face. Yep. God. I definitely, I miss that so much, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, I like when I get up, my muscles are sore and it's not like, Oh, ow, I've got like a Charlie horse here, and my neck feels like someone, you know, cracked it in the, I don't know. For sure. <laughs> 100%. Um, definitely check all that stuff out. It's going to be linked up in the show notes. Make sure you go follow him. Check out his YouTube. Like he said, they pump out a ridiculous amount of content on their YouTube channel. Um, all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes as well. Mike, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was awesome hearing you. Dude, thank you for having me.